Colleen, you still there? I am still here, and to just um, making sure that I hit the right button. <laughs> oh, because my desk disappeared, so I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Sorry about the little computer glitch. This is Colleen Francis, and I am so excited to be spending the next hour with everyone in the CAPS community and Alan Weiss. So I don't really think, Alan, that you need much of an introduction. Uh, because I'm sure everybody in the speaking community in North America or worldwide knows who you are. But I did want to let everybody know a couple of things about Alan that I think are important to this conversation and why I'm doing this. Um, first of all, if you don't know this already as CAPS members, Alan has been my business coach, business mentor, and friend for uh, the better part of five years. I first um, saw you work, Alan, in the NSA convention in New Orleans. Um, it was the same convention that Jeffrey Gittimer spoke from the main stage. I don't know if you remember it. Patricia Fripp introduced you with, I think you said, more preparation for the introduction than you did for preparing for speech. speech. That's correct. <laughs> and my first introduction to you was then at the speech um, and then at the workshop that you gave. And then I read Million Dollar Consulting. And then I read, I think at the time it was called... It wasn't called Million Dollar Speaking when it first came out, was it? It no, was called it was something money else. Talks. Money Talks. Money Talks, that's right. And Money Talks was incredibly instrumental in helping me build my speaking business um, because it was different than what everyone else was talking about um, at NSA, and that's ultimately what drove me to the Million Dollar Consulting College. And I will tell everybody on the call here that when I first started working with Alan, um, I was doing you know, let's call it about a half a million dollars worth of business, um, you know, and I had plateaued for a number of years around that time frame. And in the five years or so that you've been coaching me, we've moved the business to upwards of $1.3 million, which on its face sounds really great. But what's even better about that is we have done that without adding any expenses to the business. I have not added an employee. I have not added office space. I haven't spent any more money on contractors. So that extra $600,000 is pure profit, which I think is more powerful to those of us who are solo consultants than just the top-line revenue. Um, so I know that it's common wisdom in the speaking business to say, oh, for every couple hundred thousand dollars, you need to add a staff member. And I want everyone here on the call to recognize, and what we're going to talk about today, is how to build a speaking empire without adding all of those costs and headaches <laughs> to your business. And so, really, Alan, you have made um, a massive dis uh, difference in the quality of my life, personally and professionally, and I thank you for that. Well, it's been my pleasure. I mean, I'm, I'm really happy to have worked with you for five years, what, since you were 17, I guess. And uh, exactly. you, were, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, you were at my birthday party uh, in March, which I greatly appreciate. And um, you, 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 you tend to do things I advise, which is, you know, absolutely refreshing. I'll tell you a funny thing about New Orleans. You know, it was the only time my wife had ever been nervous in all of my speaking. I'm never nervous, but... Uh, Gittimer was the uh, general session speaker the day prior, and of course he was outrageous. He had fake vomit and he had all this kind of stuff. He was cursing his head off. And uh, I was the general session speaker the next day, and my wife was desperately afraid that I was going to try to do something to outdo Gittimer. And instead, I came out in a in a very expensive suit with a shirt and tie. Nobody ever sees me in a shirt and tie, right? And uh, yeah. I did a legitimate, uh, you know, keynote presentation. Uh, and with a lot of humor and brought the house down. But my wife didn't relax uh, until she realized I wasn't going to try to outdo Gittimer, which, you know, is possible <laughs> anyway. So. Yeah, he's slightly different larger-than-life character. He really is. He really is. <laughs> so just um, as we get started, I want to remind everybody on this call, if you've got questions that you want me to ask, Alan, if you're listening on the webcast, you can use that little Q&A um, uh, box that you see, or you can email me, Colleen at EngageSelling.com, and I can try to um, get those questions out. Um, or if you're connected to, connected to me by text, you can text them to me too. I seem to have all my devices in front of me right now. So, <laughs> um, I want to get started though, Alan, by talking about your new book, which is the launch. Oh, it is. It's the 24th. So today is the launch day of Million Dollar Maverick. And every review that I'm reading says that it's your best work yet. 
And I will be honest with you, the jury's still out for me only because Million Dollar Speaking and Million Dollar Consulting were so instrumental in my success, it's hard for me to put those out of the number one and number two position. But why do you think this book is really being catapulted up there as the best work of your 63-book library? <laughs> well, I think it's probably the same reason Million Dollar Consulting has been on the shelves for 25 years and the, and the fifth edition, the 25th anniversary edition, comes out a month from now. And that is Million Dollar Consulting was really suggested to me by McGraw-Hill. Uh, they said, we want you to do a book on how you make a million dollars consulting. And in this case, a group that I uh, facilitate every January called the Elite Retreat, which, are, is, which comprises um, speakers from NSA, uh, 10 speakers from NSA every year, uh, they, su they suggested I do a book like this, uh, Barry Banther in particular, who's a member of that group. And the group really encouraged me to do it. So uh, I'm all for taking ideas from other people. And uh, this was a book that uh, enabled me really to talk about, um, without, as Maria said, without being self-indulgent and doing my memoirs, uh, enabled me to talk about how I learned what I learned. Uh, people are always asking me, what are your thought processes? How do you do that? I can't get you know, what you're doing into my head. So I talked about how I learned what I learned and how I took that and applied it to business. And I think that's why the book sort of wrote itself, and I think it's also why people find it so pragmatic. You know, a lot of people say it's it's like having me next to them, talking to them. And um, it's gotten – I'm very, very grateful for the reception. It's just been wonderful. So how do you define what a maverick is? Well, maverick comes from uh, a guy named Thomas Maverick, who was an engineer and had cattle in Texas, you know, a couple hundred years ago, whenever it was. Uh, and he refused to brand them. You know, branding hurt cattle. And he refused to brand them, and so his cow, they had to be called something. So his, his cows, his cattle, were called Mavericks because they belonged to Tom Maverick. And the name uh, then took hold in the lexicon as a name for something different, uh, apart from the normal herd. Uh, so today, Maverick, if you look it up, is, is someone who stands apart, someone who doesn't just fall into the regular mainstream or school of fish. And that's how I define it, and that's how I've been you know, for the last 30 years of my life, ever since I got fired. Uh, I decided that uh, you know the first the first representation of this was as a contrarian, which is a brand that still sort of sticks to me today. But I decided that uh, you know that you, being a conformist success is no fun. That is, you do things other people do but better. But being a non-conformist success is not only more fun, but it's much more lucrative. You do completely different things uh, from what everyone else is doing. So that's the that's the genesis of Maverick, and that's why I find it so appealing. So is it fair to say you didn't? think of yourself as a maverick when you were in corporate life? I thought of myself in corporate life in all candor as an outsider. I, I would sit at Prudential Insurance where I worked for four years, which was approximately, let me see, oh, four years too long. Uh, I saw myself <laughs> as, uh, as an outsider, as someone who didn't believe that you took a break when the bell rang, that you couldn't walk out on the street unless you had a personal day. <laughs> you know, you didn't sing the company fight song every morning. I mean, Prudential's engaged in noble work. Insurance is fine work, but I just didn't see myself as part of that. Uh, and I struggled with that. And even when I uh, was with this consulting firm in Princeton, kept in Trigo for 11 years, where I, I learned the craft, uh, I saw myself as somewhat different because uh, people were all kinds of mixed up in the methodology. And I said, what the hell? If I can do this in, in half the time and get the result, I've made the same money, but I've saved myself half the time. And I remember arguing with a, a, a vice president, a guy above me in the hierarchy, who said, look, this program lasts a week. You did it in three days. I, uh, I was in the Philippines at the time. I said, yeah, the client's happy and I'm happy. Why aren't you happy? But, the, you know, they just didn't get it. You know, it's, it's like the, the human resource person in General Electric who says it's 4 o'clock. I said, yeah, I'm done, and so are they. They said, we hired you till 5. I need another hour. It's that kind of stupid stuff. So that made me an outsider. But you can't really be a maverick until you're out on your own. You can, you, you can be alienated within the herd, but if you want to be a maverick, you've got to walk away from the herd. And I think that this point is one of the most important maverick points for speakers, trainers, and consultants out there. And it took me a long time to grasp this. Um, so I would like everyone in this call to grasp it right away. <laughs> and that is that speed is in the best interest of the customer. So the faster you get things done, um, the better it is for the customer because they can go out and start implementing. Um, can you help the CAPS audience really truly understand that and internalize it, Alan? Well, I can try. Uh, I mean, the, the thing is this. Speed is as important as content. Uh, I mean, all of you have good content. All of us have good content. 
you know, there's no argument there. The, the argument, though, is how that content's applied, and often it's applied too laboriously. The methodology is too complex. You know, we insist on step four. We can't go to step five. Uh, you know, I got news for you. I drive exotic cars, and I can shift from second gear to fourth gear without much problem, and third gear never complains it hasn't been used. So you, you need to go as fast as you can because getting there fastest with decent content is better than getting there second or third or fourth with perfect content. Perfection kills excellence. And so we have to understand that this is a world of speed. And organization plus discipline equals speed. So if you are highly organized and highly disciplined, you can move faster. You know where things are. You know how to use them. Bang, bang, bang. And I mean, think of yourself in a jet fighter, one of these sophisticated jet fighters. You know, these pilots don't take out a manual and go through the steps. If they have to do something, it's got to be instinctual and it's fast or they're dead. Uh, they're either dead from enemy fire or they're dead because they've crashed in a, in a plane going, you know, more than the speed of sound. So in this yeah, world so today, we have to go very, very fast, and we have to get used to it and comfortable with it. So I see this applying um, in two ways to our, our businesses. One, um, our own business, so speed in terms of writing fast, getting published fast, doing our own work in an organized way in our own offices, and then also with the customer. Like you say, if you can get a five-day workshop done in three days and the customer is happy with that, then that's in the best interest of everyone. Um, so let's talk about the customer piece for a second, because it strikes me that we often get into conversations where they say, I need a two-day workshop, or I need a three-day workshop, or our mindset says, well, I want to take two days because I want more money. Where do we start changing that? Well, we, we start changing that by understanding that if you want more money, which is a legitimate goal in life, it's not from investing more time. If that were the case, uh, we'd all be running ourselves into the ground. You get more money by providing more value. And value these days is a function of speed. It's a, it's a, value is a function of how fast I can apply what you're giving me. So if you give me you know, the fallacy of a four-year college education is you have to wait four years before you can use any of it, and by that time, some of it's obsolete. And it's a silly notion. You know, it's a, a four-year college education today is a stupid notion, you know. And, and think of grammar schools for eight years and high schools for four years. Stupid notions. We need to change all this crap. But essentially for business, the faster you give somebody something, they can use it. Like when you're in their office talking to them, the better off they are. And by definition, the, the more methodology and technology you bring to bear, the longer something's going to take. So we have to get into our own heads the fact that the faster you can give somebody something and the faster they can use it, the more valuable it is. It's not a question of more time. It's a question of less time. So figuring out ways to deliver our content um, that make it instantly applicable for the customer so they can get value from it. Yes, and being willing to tuck our egos away and streamline our own processes. I'll, I'll give you a very quick example. Uh, I've been yeah. doing the consulting college for 10, 11 years. It's one of the longest things I've ever done. I get bored, but I like doing that. I do it once or twice a year. Uh, and this last one I did uh, in May uh, or March uh, only had eight people uh, because I wouldn't normally do one then, but some people requested it. So eight people, I did it, and I did it in three and a half days instead of four and a half days because we had fewer people. It's designed for 15. And it suddenly struck me as I was sitting there that I could do it in three and a half days for 15 people too if I made some minor changes. And so my December college, which will cost exactly the same, $16,000 for 15 people, will be three and a half days instead of four and a half days. And guess what? They have to spend one less day away from home. They spend one less day paying for their rooms. I spend one less day engaged with them and so forth. I don't know. Can I get it to two and a half days? I'll think about it. <laughs> and they're not getting any less value. There's no, they're getting the same value. They're getting more value because not only do they get the same value I deliver, but they're saving themselves one day. Ah, uh, that's a really, really important differentiator. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't see it like that, but you're right. They're going to get home faster to either spend that time with their families or implement or whatever, you know, however you look at it. But you're right. You, they get a whole day back. How valuable would it be if an accredited school gave you the education you need, I mean a, a full-blown degree or the equivalent of what we talk about today is a full-blown degree, in two years instead of four if you're capable of doing that. It's immensely valuable. But yeah. we don't think that way. We think in terms well, of tenure and professors and, and, and 35 credits and so on. And I guess that's part of the whole idea behind value-based fees is if we can show our value to the customer in um, a set 
or a shorter period of time, then it behooves them to pay um, the true value for that work, regardless of whether they were there for one day or ten days. Well, you know, one of my great stories with Hewlett Packard, I worked with them for 10 years, and I got to the point I was on such an intimate basis. They said, Alan, you're the only guy who can do this. We need this desperately done in December. We made a mistake. We need it in 30 days. I said, I can do it. It's $50,000. They said, fine. When will you be here? I said, I won't be there. They said, what do you mean you won't be here? I said, I don't need to be there. I'll get it done in December. You want to argue? I won't do it. They said, okay, fine. And I did it. And it took me about three days, Colleen. It took me about three days to do. And if I had to go spend political time on their site, wandering around, shaking hands, it would have been another week of my time, uh, and the 50000 would have eroded in terms of its value to me. That's how it works. So why don't more speakers, trainers, consultants push back that way? Ego. They're afraid. They have low Ego. self-esteem. Yeah, they, they, oh. speakers want to be loved. Speakers are one of the you know lawyers are the worst profession in the world for business practices. Lawyers have no clue about business. Legality, yes. I mean, if you need a litigator, get a lawyer. You need a business advisor. Run like hell from anybody with a legal degree. Now, speakers, what they love is validation because they don't provide themselves with self-validation. They need to stand on the stage and have people love them. They have to stand on the stage and have people stand up and clap or fill out these stupid smile sheets. You know what? My most successful speaking, and I are in the Hall of Fame, I remind you, my most successful oh, yeah. speaking <laughs> is when I provoke the hell out of people. If I'm getting all nines and tens on smile sheets, I haven't done my job. I don't give a rap if people stand up or sit down or walk out. I don't care. What I care about is whether I get business from this. And you get business by provoking people, not by being loved, by being respected. And speakers spend too much time wanting to be loved. You know, you go to an average speaker's meeting. I'm sure this never happens in CAPS, okay? I've only spoken <laughs> in chap, CAPS chapters about five times, and I think I've done three uh, uh, plenary sessions for the conventions up there. But what do I know? Uh, I'm sure it never happens in CAPS. But, you know, somebody gets up and does a showcase, or they do some kind of, you know, representative 10 minutes, and everybody screams about how good they are, and they applaud and everything, and they're terrible. And we're doing a disservice to them. But speakers want to be loved. And that's why speakers are afraid to do this. That's why they're, they're afraid to, to tell the truth. Yeah, you know, many people in CAPS have heard my story about how I spoke at this big event, and there were all sorts of great-name NSA people at this event, a client event, and they all saw me speak, and then we all got the smile sheets back from the Bureau, and we were all CC'd on everyone's results, and mine said, even with Colleen, this was a good conference. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> And I cried. I like I literally I, I cried in my office and then I called the bureau to apologize because I'm a Canadian. <laughs> and then a very interesting thing happened. Out of all of those speakers, and it was Tim Gard, Mark Sanborn, Connie Podesta, like really great speakers who got great results. I was the only one that got spin off. And that client has been worth multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars to me since then because I've had so much spin-off and nobody else did. And that's when my maverick move was to refuse to do smile sheets on my own. If the client wants to do them, that's fine. I don't care. But what value is it of us to get comments back that say, well, you ranked better than lunch? <laughs> I tell you, this is a true story. Uh, it was reported in the New England Journal of Medicine. There was an, a medical conference in New England someplace. And they had like uh, 25 outside speakers, you know, come in talking about oncology or, or, you know, dermatology or whatever. And everybody got rated. And one guy got the highest ratings, tens across the, the, the board. So the organizers of the conference said, let's find out who this doctor was because that's really important. He got better marks than anybody else. They found out he never showed up. Oh. <laughs> okay. That's taking validation. And so what happened was, when they went over all these evaluation sheets, nobody could remember them, so they all gave them tens. <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. Yeah, true story. I don't, I don't um, suggest anyone try that on purpose, but it's very interesting. I don't know. I'm thinking of it. I mean, pay me in advance? I don't know. I could make wow. that work, Colleen. Yeah, I'm sure. That's very interesting. Um, for those people who have just emailed me to say that um, they have to drop off for client calls or anything, yes, the call is going to be recorded, so don't worry about it. <laughs> we have that. Yeah, it's um, so ego and fear. So people um, want uh, – it sounded like what you were saying was we need to have higher self-esteem, um, which I believe is to be true, to make sure that we're getting internal validation um, and from our support systems and ourselves, not external validation. 
That's right. Your, your self-worth has to be constant, and you have to be able to understand that no matter how you happen to have performed on a given day, you're still a person of high worth. And as long as you've done nothing illegal or unethical, you're a person of high worth. Uh, but when you start to seek that, um, that reinforcement from outside, you're subject to all the vagaries of outside reinforcement, which are somebody else is having a bad day, somebody else wants to undermine you to raise, uh, elevate themselves, uh, somebody didn't agree with what you said, and so forth and so on. And none of that is relevant. Very good points. So tell me, what do you think that speakers could be doing to um, be more maverick? What are some practical tips that can help them? Well, the first thing is to stop thinking of themselves as speakers and start thinking of themselves as experts. Uh, speaking is a commodity, and nobody cares. You know, I mean, I joined, I just got a notice from NSA, uh, my 30-year anniversary, I joined in 86. You know, I, I think I was walking down the street, walked into the wrong door, and I became a member. So 30 years later, here I am, but the, the industry has changed hugely. Nobody wants speakers anymore. Um, and, and the people who do want speakers want celebrity speakers, who so they want to pay, you know, six figures to just to say that, you know, uh, some politician showed up. So you should start first considering yourself an expert in your subject matter. The second thing is you should consider the fact that uh, uh, experts declare. Uh, they don't simply observe. They declare. And they say, here's the truth, here's, the, here's my prediction, here's what's going to happen. And they don't care about the repercussions. Uh, they don't care about perhaps being wrong. They don't care in a prediction. They don't care about um, people disagreeing with them and so forth and so on. The third thing is that they have to ask themselves, where do I want to be in a year? What kind of business do I want to be in? What kind of value do I want to be providing? Because to my mind, an expert speaks as a means to an end. You don't speak as an end in and of itself. Uh, to me, it's, uh, it, and, you know, I'm one of the few people probably historically who are non-celebrities who could have made a very, very good living just delivering keynotes. Uh, but first of all, that's boring as hell. And secondly, it's way too much work, you know, speaking four times a month, once a week, or more than that on the road. Who needs it? And so you have to say to yourself, what kind of business do I want to be in? What kind of, of, um, uh, of resources do I want to have for my family and for myself? And, and start using speaking as a means, not an end. And then the, the final thing, which I'm sure is going to uh, you know, light up your board there, is that you have to stop hanging out with so many damn speakers. Uh, this profession becomes incestuous. We begin speaking in jargon. Uh, and we don't understand that um, uh, the, the important thing for us is to understand business, not other speakers. Business ac acumen is the key. I have heard more incorrect, inaccurate, fallacious business advice from speakers than from Facebook. And that's saying something because Facebook is largely wrong about everything. <laughs> um, and yes, you're right. I, uh, my board has been lit up with um, exclamation marks and comments like, eek! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's something wrong with fire. <laughs> You've done your job. You can go back to your cigar well, and Well, this gone. is what Mavericks do. <laughs> Well, you know, if you think about it, there are some mavericks in our business who um, exude and exhibit exactly what you just said. You know, I would say Randy Gage is a great example of someone who puts himself out there as an expert, not a speaker, and who makes predictions and doesn't care what people think. Um, the last time I saw him with you, didn't he predict that we'd all be living underwater or Something yeah, like yeah. That. <laughs> he predicted we'd all have precious metals in foreign banks. But, I mean, a lot of what he says is right on target. And Randy's always interesting to listen to. You know, Larry Wingard is another yeah. one. You might not agree with them all the time. I mean, God, none of us care if people agree with us. None of us who are really successful care if you agree with us or not. Our job is to make you think. And yeah. uh, Larry Wingard's another one who does that. And so, uh, you know, we started this particular discussion by you asking about, you know, advice for speakers. Stop trying to conform. Stop trying to be part of the mainstream. Stop copying and emulating what you see others do, because by definition, that's non-maverick. That's herd behavior. Yeah, that's very true. And I do believe, you know, and I learned this by accident early on, is the more opinionated I was, the more money I made. No one wants to pay you, you know, $10,000, $20,000, $100,000 to come in and say, well, you could do it this way, or you could do it that way, or maybe another way is a better option, or, you know, have you thought about this fourth way? They want you to come in and say, this is the way we're going to do things, or this is the right way, um, and you're going to get better success that way as well. Well, nobody ever said, no executive ever said, here's $250,000, find me a yes man. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's a good point. That is a very good point. So let's talk about fee 
fees for a second because a question that I got is, Colleen, I understand all this, but what about fee integrity in our business? I mean, how do I become a maverick and how do I become an expert if I have to give the same fees to everybody? You don't have to give the same fees to everybody. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's a good question. So why don't, why don't you believe that we have to? Are you talking about fees for general uh, work or just fees for speaking or what? Fees for speaking and workshops. Like being, you know, if a bureau calls, we have to have the same fees. And to be fair, we have to give the, the same speaking fee to, you know, customer A versus customer B. Okay. Well, that's just baloney. Uh, first of all, I mean, first of all, uh, bureaus should be a fallback position. They shouldn't be a primary way of acquiring business. Uh, and bureaus themselves are dying if you take a look back 10 years. I mean, now they're trying to sell their services to speakers. They, they charge you for reviewing your video. They charge you for being in their um, catalog and so on. But the important thing is this. When we speak at different places for different people, we provide different value based on the objectives and what they want us to accomplish. And I suggest that everyone listening to this never looks at a speech uh, as an event. They look at a speech as a process. And so you have before, during, and after. Ask yourself, before the speech, what can I provide to the client? During the speech, what can I provide? And after the speech, what can I provide? And give the client a menu and say, you choose, and then we'll come up with a fee. Now, the bureau, if you work for the bureau, should love this because you're raising your fee. But this is how you change, say, I don't know what the average fee is for CAPS members, but let's say you change a $7,500 speech into a $35,000 process because uh, m most people give out handouts, but that's valuable. That's a menu item. Uh, most people or some people do surveys. Uh, some people call uh, participants in advance. Some people do something for uh, spouses or support people. Uh, some people provide copies of their slides. Uh, when I run Speaking with Alan, which is a, a two-day workshop I do here, uh, I tell people I want 12 things you can do before a speech, 12 things you can do during the speech, and 12 things you can do after the speech. And they grit their teeth and they sit down and they, they work with each other, but they do them and we get them. And now you're talking about $50,000 and you're not talking about 7500 that's how you charge different amounts to different people instead of just saying, here's my speaking fee, which is kind of dumb. And I think you, I think I experienced that for the first time with you in Million Dollar Consulting College. Uh, we did an exercise on unbundling where you got right. to pull out all those things um, and then think about how we offer our services very differently. So what can you do before, whether it be interviews or um, surveys? handout, what can you do during, and if you're at a big trade show, um, I just was at a big trade show and they paid me extra to walk around, I love this, to walk around to seven booths who had um, were participating in a contest and judge their sales pitches. So I got to meet all the buyers for all of these companies that could be potential leads, listen to their sales pitch and pick a winner. And that they was paid you an for extra add-on. Yeah, they yeah. paid me for it. <laughs> it was great fun. So, and then what can you do after, including follow-up? And I think when we do that, we definitely set ourselves apart from other speakers, and we're more likely to win the business at our current fee or at a higher fee. Well, now, the key here is, all this makes eminent sense, when, but here's the key. You cannot be talking to a meeting planner. You cannot be talking to human resources or learning and development, and you can't be working just through the bureau. You have to talk to the person who owns the speech, who owns the event. And that's going to be an economic buyer. It's going to be the vice president of sales in your case, or it's going to be you know, some kind of executive. It's got to be the person whose budget is being invested because other people will never make these decisions. So I know that other people on the call are dying to ask for me to ask this question because it happens to me all the time. The bureau calls, they put them on hold, you ask to speak to the buyer, and they either say no or the buyer's not ready or they just never respond to that. How can we get around that? Who's they, the bureau? The Bureau, yeah. Uh, you say to the Bureau the following, look, here's the deal. Uh, you're going to let me talk to the buyer so that I can raise the amount of money here, I can raise the fee for you and for me. Now, if you see something wrong with that, I'm going to call the Bureau President, and we're going to talk about it. And if the Bureau President doesn't like that, then you're not going to represent me anymore. Ciao. But why would we feel indebted to bureaus, who happen to feel, by the way, that the client is theirs, which is false. The, cl the client is the speakers, the experts. They're just the middle people. They add no value, really. But if you're going to go through a bureau, why would you be acting like a subordinate? Why would you act like an employee of the bureau? You tell the bureau how you're going to work. I remember when I used to tell bureaus, look, here's how it works. I don't get 50% to hold the debt. I get 100%. And you take your commission and you forward me the rest. There is no such thing as escrow. I don't want to hear about escrow. And by the way, the, all those people who had escrow in the bureau in Texas that folded, international speakers, 
lost their money because yeah, they folded. They didn't money. use the money correctly. So, yeah. uh, uh, and by the way, expenses, I'm going to bill directly to the client. Expenses aren't going to go through you either. Okay. So you have to read the riot act to the bureaus. You can't act like you're this somehow the janitor who's supposed to be cleaning up in the hallways. <laughs> so how do you – I'm going to push this a little bit because – and I'll use me as an example. I've got a, two bureaus that I work with where I'm working with the presidents. They're really, really good bureaus, and they have brought me um, great clients that we've done lots of ongoing work with. So I, we have this agreement that I want to talk to the client, and they know why, and they love it because I can usually sell myself better than they can. But there's these cases where they can't get the client to commit to talking to me. Is there anything that I can do to, um, to engage with that client when the Bureau can't seem to get the client engaged? I don't think the Bureau's trying. Frankly, what the Bureau is doing is they're dealing with an event planner, with a meeting planner. That's who Bureaus deal with. You deal with middle people dealing with middle people. It's like Middle Earth. It's like they're all hobbits, you know? And so what you have to do... Is you have to say, look, I'm going to call a client directly on your behalf. I won't, you know, do anything, but I got to call because what the bureau is saying to the meeting planner is, our talent, our speaker would like to meet with the vice president, and the, the and their people who are threatened say, no, that's not going to happen. It's not the vice president turning it down because if you think about this rationally, what officer investing his or her own budget in an event like this wouldn't want to talk to a speaker since to, to engage in this conversation? Look. I'd like to hear your expectations so I can make sure I meet and exceed your expectations. What are they? I mean, everybody wants to be in that conversation if they're bright. And so you cannot allow yourself to deal with a middleman working through a middleman or whatever the gender-neutral expression there is. Uh, So there's no such thing as the Bureau saying the client won't let us. What they're saying is another low-level scared person won't agree to put this through. And so you say, fine, I'm going to go around them. Yeah. I discovered a few years ago that in 100% of the cases where I couldn't get the buyer on the phone, the actual sales VP or the president in my case, I lost the business Yeah. Uh, because my content and my style are not attractive to meeting planners. Um, and so if I don't push, for me personally, I found I have nothing to lose because if I push and the bureau gets ticked off and says, well, then fine, we won't put the date on hold, um, I'm not going to win, you know, it doesn't really matter because I'm not going to win the business anyway. So it made sense to me to push um, and to try to go try to go around, but I always at least tell them I'm going to go around. <laughs> uh, uh, right? Uh, yeah, and it, right. And if, if, if imagine if you don't get along with all of them, imagine me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's really true. It wasn't, wasn't that Very funny comment. It actually was quite funny. (laughs) So that's a real maverick way to work with bureaus is to to tell them how you do business instead of of them telling you how they're going to do business. Right. And I want you to think about one thing, uh, you having said that, and that is that what you're actually saying is the maverick way to do business is to stand up for your own best interests. Yes. Because that's really what you just said. And uh, what happens is the mainstream just doesn't stand up for their own self-interest, and they allow um, someone else, the bureau, the client, somebody else, to dictate things. And that's, that's crazy. So being a maverick often means just looking out for yourself. Yeah, and, you know, we had this conversation when we were together in Venice in um, April, how you always start your decision-making process of, for these kinds of events is what's in it for me. Right. Um, do I want to do this? And the push to our group at the time was it's not, or it should very rarely be the money, right? So your your first position as a as um, a successful speaker, trainer, consultant, expert isn't well. I want the money because that's when we find ourselves in, you know, basements <laughs> in <laughs> in small towns that took us eight flights to get there, and we're thinking, what the hell am I doing here? Right. Right, and don't forget the trouble with a herd mentality is that sometimes the herd, uh, as one group, uh, charges off the end of a cliff, and that's why you have to look out for yourself. Yeah. So I wanted to dive into a little bit more what you meant by speaking as a means to an end, um, as opposed to an end of itself. So what should we be thinking about in terms of uh, what the the, the different endpoint is? Well. Um, it seems to me, just from a point of personal fulfillment, let's start there, that uh, speaking can create some skills transfer. 
but not a whole lot of behavior no. change ultimately, right? Because you're there for an hour. And if you're doing yeah. a workshop like my Million Dollar Consulting College, which are lengthier, then you can get behavior change. But simply speaking of, uh, in terms of a plenary session, you know, you, you're going to get some, some awareness and some skills transfer, but you're not going to get a whole lot of behavior change. My feeling is that I, I'm more fulfilled when I can see behavior changing and organizations improving and people improving. And that has to come post simply speaking. But the second thing is, uh, I think ethically, uh, to really help a client, uh, you need to help a client achieve profound change so that they can see short-term business results. Now, when you hire uh, you know, uh, an ex-president uh, to speak, for example, if you hire a, a Bush or a Clinton or whomever, I'm not trying to be partisan here, in the U.S. to speak, uh, you, you, the advantage you're getting is you can say, well, we had the ex-president of the United States here, and it's a big deal, and it was worth $250,000. But if, you, if you're hiring non-celebrities because you really want to achieve something and not just have a certain person on stage, you'd like to see a change in your organization. And, and whether, I don't care if you had Hammer when he was big on reengineering or Jim Collins talking about good to great or whomever it is. Unless you have uh, some kind of intervention in the organization, you're not going to see much improvement. And that's why speaking fees generally are rather capped. You know, I mean, let's, let's face it. Uh, for a non-celebrity speaker, uh, you know, I'm at $35,000. If I've just violated 12 CAPS rules, you're going to edit that out. But uh, I'm at $35,000, which is about the top for a non-celebrity keynote. Uh, you know, there might be a couple of people pulling in more than that, but not many. And uh, it, it, there is a cap on these things if you're not doing something more than just walking out on stage and talking. Uh, and a lot of speakers, I mean, they did a survey once in, in NSA, I remember, uh, not all that long ago, and the average fee for a speaker was 3500 bucks or worse. It's not good. Well, that's a lot of days on the calendar to make $100,000 even. Um, when you think about that travel to get there, the travel to get home, and the work that has to go into putting that speech together. So. Yeah, and the next problem is that 100000 ain't what it used to be. No, wow, that's a good. That's a really good point. Yeah. But you know what happens? I mean, there are some speakers who are members of, uh, you know, the broader NSA Caps community who really are more entertainers. Uh, you know, a speaker like myself or other experts have a lot of options afterwards, and you know, for consulting projects. Um, but what can those speakers who don't do that kind of work do um, to either? Well, if you're an entertainer, what did what did uh, Jerry Seinfeld do? Jerry Seinfeld did stand-up comedy uh, seven nights a week all over the country, traveled like crazy. That's how he made his money. Finally wound up on The Tonight Show and then got his own series. Uh, yeah. But most speakers who are entertainers are not going to wind up on The Tonight Show and get their own series. And so consequently, you know, I mean, Larry Winget got a couple of commercials there for a while. Uh, uh, but basically, there's nowhere else to go. And so unless you resign yourself to doing your act, quote-unquote, as often as you possibly can, uh, you are delimiting how much money you can earn, and you are maximizing the amount of travel you're going to have to do. I mean, it's as simple as that. And frankly, once you've appeared someplace, I mean, the, in the short-term future, they're not going to have you back again because they've seen your act. Now, you know, I've spoken at the same client repeatedly because one time it would be on innovation, one time it would be on behavior, one time it would be on strategy. All this is within my expertise. But if you're just doing an act, uh, how many times can you see that? So I, I don't regard performers as quite the same. Yeah, you know, there's two things that strike me as you say that. Um, one, um, for those people who maybe are more on the entertainment or the humor side, um, the company, there's probably lots of internal referrals. You know, if they loved you for their sales kickoff, then why not for your marketing meeting or their executive off, you know, retreat? So working the internal referral. But two, you know, some of the speakers in those categories could, if they thought harder about it, work on implementation programs or remote learning or consulting work to actually help implement the messages that they're delivering. True, of course. You could. Yeah. Now, you, yeah. Again, you might not be of that bent. I mean, as you pointed out, maybe that's not, that doesn't float your boat. But if that's the case, uh, then you're more limited, you're more narrowed, and you're not going to make as much money. I mean, that's the, just the hard truth of it. Yeah, good, very good point. Um, let's talk about referrals for a second, because you wrote a book on referrals as well, which is excellent, million-dollar uh, referrals, sticking to the theme, right? <laughs> are there things that you do yourself or teach that you think are um, different, maverick-like when asking for referrals? Uh, I don't think I'm maverick-like asking for referrals, except that I have the discipline to ask for them. 
uh, most people uh, don't ask sufficiently. Uh, I, you know, the, the best person I know is Canadian. Nancy McKay out in Vancouver is ferociously good at asking for referrals. Has been. I, I, I had helped her since she was a college professor and launched her own career, and now she makes seven figures. And, um, but even Nancy would say to me, I want you to help me get better at asking for referrals. And I'd say, yeah, but you're the, you're the best person I know. She'd say, I can get still better. Uh, people don't have the discipline to ask for referrals. And when I do ask for them, I'm very blunt. What I say is, uh, our project has gone well. At this stage of the game, I always ask my best customers for referrals because referrals are the coinage of my realm. Can you give me three or four names uh, who you think could use this kind of value, and would you be willing to introduce me? Uh, and if they say, let me give it some thought, I say, look, I know how priorities are. And if you give this some thought with the best of intentions, I'm going to have to call you back five times. And I don't want to do that. So while I'm here, let's talk about it. Uh, and that's how I do that. And if you think about that, if you think that's unrealistic or can't be done, the realty industry, the auto industry, the insurance industry, I could go on and on, are based largely on referral business. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me because, uh, you know, for everyone listening to this call, I was with Alan at the end of April in Venice for a, a, an elite um, event that he runs every year that used to be called a uh, million dollar, what was it called? Million, million dollar, million dollar club. Million dollar club. <laughs> I couldn't even remember. That's very difficult. And, you know, yeah. you, had, you had 10 or so people around the table all producing from between a million dollars to oh. the highest solo was, you know, 2 million euros maybe. Um, well, they would, we some were producing all, six, seven million, yeah. Yeah, and we're all looking at you, going, "Oh, I hate asking for referrals. I'm not asking for <laughs> referrals." <laughs> and um, so during that session, um, I wrote down a bunch of referrals I needed to ask for. Came home, started through my list, and I think I'm four for four. So I don't know well, what the hell is wrong with me, but. <laughs> But this is a problem that happens, you know, at the top end as well um, as, you know, the most, the new people, right? It's more of a mindset issue, I think, than anything else. Well, it is a mindset issue, but it's also the esteem issue we talked about, and that is people are afraid that they'll be rejected. They're afraid that they'll say, no, I won't give you a referral, or I can't think of anybody, or, geez, it's, I, it's inappropriate, or we have a company policy against it. But actually, if, if, even if any of that is true, you know better, you know worse off than you were before. Yeah, that's very true. But we take it personally. I think that too many people take that rejection personally, or they're scared to ask because what if the customer didn't like me as much as I thought that they did? Right? You, know, uh, that, you know what that reminds me of, Colleen? I used to find some of these people who'd say to me, they would say, oh, I don't go to the doctor. I haven't been to a doctor in 15 years. And I'd say, why not? they say, I'm afraid of what they might find in there. I mean, it's the same kind of stupid <laughs> logic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's very, very good point. You can't hide behind that or fear it, really. You've never, um, of course not. <laughs> I think that the, the the starting of that maverick mindset and self-esteem is the the rock solid, God's honest belief that we have value to bring to the marketplace. I, I, you know, I had two conversations today. One with a coaching client uh, on Skype, and the other with a woman who came here this morning for a couple hours. And it, this, the discussion was the same. You're not selling something, you're offering something. Your mindset has to be that you're offering value, that you have such value, such expertise, that other people can't fail to be helped by it. Therefore, you're never intruding. You're never an interloper. You're offering things. How can people refuse it? As opposed to, oh, God, they know I'm kind of trying to sell them something. They're going to resist. I, I'm really trying to haunt them. This isn't right. So it's a, really a question of your own mindset. You know, one of my newsletters is called Million Dollar Mindset. And it's really about how you get your head together in the right way. Yes, it's very true. So, you know, one of the things that has um, struck me about watching your business over the last uh, number of years is you're constantly changing. And I think that this is what um, helps to define you as a maverick, is that what you were offering 10 years ago um, doesn't look anything like what you're offering now. Can you walk us through how you decide to toss things out and start new things? Well, I can walk you through. It's not very complicated. Uh, I get bored really easily. Uh, you know, I have an over right now a slightly over three million dollar business, and seventy five percent of my income is based on things I wasn't doing three years ago, uh, and that's the way I like it. Uh, really? So I have some seventy five percent. I want to stop yeah. you there for just one second. Seventy five percent is based on stuff you weren't doing three years ago. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. I mean, the only stuff I do long term uh, is the Million Dollar Consulting College, and Thought Leadership is in its seventh or eighth year. 
But the consulting convention, which draws huge crowds, is only in its this will be its third year uh, next year in Chicago. In Chicago. Uh, I changed the Million Dollar Club that you referred to now as by invitation only. The, the reason for all this is that I get bored really easily. I don't like to do things repetitively. It's no thrill for me. Uh, I work out three times a week with a personal trainer when I'm home, and I hate it, but I do it uh, because it keeps me in very good shape. And my doctor, you know, my age, my doctor says you're in really good shape. Well, the same thing with your brain. And you've got to work at your brain repeatedly. And there are too many people making the same speech, laughing at the same stories, crying at the same juncture forever. And it's boring. I mean, it's boring when I look at them. It must be boring when they do it. But I get bored real easily. Uh, as you know, I mean, I've walked into a workshop where people have paid, you know, there are 40 people in the room, they've paid $5,000 each, and I've decided to wing it. I've just thrown out the outline and winged it. Uh, to me, that's living. I mean, that's like improv theater. That's, that's being out there. So I keep reinventing myself because the, the alternative is frightening. You know, I just don't want to get in a rut. Have you always trusted yourself to be able to walk into a room and wing it? Uh, well, it depends what you mean by always. I sound like Bill Clinton. It depends what is, is. But uh, <laughs> it depends what you mean by always. When I first found out in high school the power of language and how to change something, and this, this incident, by the way, is related in Million Dollar Maverick, um, I realized I had it made because I realized I had a power nobody else had, or very few people have, the power of language. And so I built my language uh, steadily over the years. Uh, you know, my therapist said once, you have a series of pipes you've created no one else can play. And, uh, and so I am confident, you know me, no, no guilt, no fear, no peer. I walk into a room, I own it. And uh, I've always had the confidence that I can deal with whatever I'm looking at. Uh, whatever confronts me, I can deal with, yeah. So it was fascinating to me a few years ago during one of our coaching sessions, and I think Chris was actually with me, I asked you to critique some video that I was doing, and I don't know, within like 10 seconds of you watching the video, you said to me, are you using a teleprompter? And yeah. I said, yes. <laughs> and you said, experts don't use teleprompters, and then um, instantly got bored with the conversation, I think. We <laughs> 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 um, went home, and it instantly changed that. And um, it's fascinating to me how the quality of the video has improved, how much labor I've saved, going back to, you know, being a maverick, because I don't have to write them and post them on the teleprompter, which inherently didn't work or broke down or, you know, was installed backwards, whatever the situation was, and your engagement with the audience. Um, in this case, the camera, the virtual audience um, has changed. But I find starting with something small like that, then gave me the confidence to say, you know what, I could probably wing it in front of an audience for a keynote and wing it for a, a full-day session or a half-day session. And when you do, you're in the moment. And when you're in the moment, you connect with the audience in a far greater way. Right on. Right on, sister. Yeah. And I think that from a, you know the speakers um, in the room uh, on this call, sorry, um, that's one way that we can really set ourselves apart from other speakers because there's a very big difference in, um, you know, getting repeat business, getting consulting business, getting, you know, add-on business when the audience feels like you've connected with them as opposed to you're just, you know, speaking at them. So being in the moment is really critical. Yeah, it really is. And that's why even in, in my keynotes, uh, no matter what the size of the crowd, I always try to do Q&A because it's another way of showing you're connecting by answering what's on their minds, not just what's in your prepared comments. So what kind of programs? In the last three years, um, you've rolled out some um, really interesting programs. Um, do, do you consider any of them to be sort of maverick things that other business coaches like you are not doing? Oh, yeah. I mean, for example, uh, uh, Thought Leadership has brought together uh, seven or eight world-class thinkers. I mean, this year it's Dan Gilbert uh, from Harvard who's done seminal work on happiness and who had 15 million-plus TED views. Uh, and I bring these people in uh, for a 90-minute free-for-all with just 30 people in the room. Uh, and also they have dinner with us. Uh, you know, you were there when James Carville, the great political analyst, was with us. And we all got drunk on bourbon at dinner. I made sure I had his favorite brand and then brought him his you know, 70th uh, birthday cake. You know, I mean, uh, where else do you get – I mean, if you've gone to every one of these or most of these, where else could you have gotten exposure to people like, you know, Dan Pink and Marshall Goldsmith and, and David Maester and so forth? Uh, the second thing is that uh, this, what used to be called the Million Dollar Club, and now by invitation only, I mean, it's in its, uh, God, I don't know, its ninth year, eighth year, I forget, uh, but we've been to Bora Bora and St. Lucia and Monaco, and uh, next year the Greek Isles, apparently, and, uh, you know, 
Venice a couple of months ago, where uh, you know ten people with, who check their egos at the door with a high level of trust and with their spouses, you know, um, talk very candidly about their business from people who have been there and done that. Uh, and it isn't uh, you know it, it isn't one of these things where everybody's trying to show off. Uh, I, I'm very proud of that. Uh, I think some of my subscription services are unique. You know, we're, I just finished the last six uh, shootings of um, Change Your Life, Change Your Life You Have Into the Life You Want. Uh, and I've done that with an, a small audience. I've done that with people I've interviewed. I've done it by myself. Uh, and so, you know, these are the kinds of things that I'm very proud of that I think are, are quite different. And, there's, and the result, I mean, the, the proof of the pudding, the social proof, uh, is that there is nobody who has my brand um, in their space like I do. In other words, you'd have to go to a Marshall Goldsmith or a Seth Godin or somebody the way I own solo consulting. You know, I'll go to Australia next week. And I have sold out my room. I can't put any more than 45 people in this room, and they're paying $2,000 each in U.S. dollars, in the Australian dollars week, $2,000, 45 people in Australia uh, to work with me for two days. Wow, that's so fabulous. That's, you know, it's incredible, and, and, and I appreciate every moment of it. So, uh, but you know, that's what technology and strong branding can do in the world today. So, yes, strong branding for sure because you attract people to you because you have strong branding. But some of the things that you're doing are either are even now um, helping to strengthen your brand even further, I think, because you're going to a much broader audience. People outside of solo consulting are starting to pay attention to you is what I mean. Yeah, and that's my intent um, as well. That's, that's right. I think with Million Dollar Maverick, that's, it's really the book that's going to help propel you beyond your original community. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, wrote, um, I wrote a proposal that was turned down by McGraw-Hill and Wiley called How to Sell Retail. And the, the subtitle was How to Reach 6 Billion Consumers. Because there are 6 billion people in the world, and like 75% are going to have access to the Internet not too long. Uh, and both publishers turned it down. But I think now I might have a better shot with it, given the success of Maverick already, uh, because I'm convinced that it's increasingly a retail world. And in fact, as you know, I'm running some programs soon uh, to help people who are in the corporate business adjust to sell to the retail world. And I, I think that's clearly, clearly the future, and I, I'm very excited about that. Yeah. So, you know, I'm thinking about some of the programs that you've run in, because I think a lot of speakers are looking for alternative types of programs, and I think it's valuable for everyone to be thinking, what else can we do that's different from what everyone is um, already doing? And this... Um, how to Improve Your Life program is interesting to me because you're doing videos that people can watch, but not videos where you're just standing in front of a whiteboard doing training. You actually have other people with you. Can you explain a little bit about how that works? Yeah, I asked for volunteers. And uh, for you know, there are 24 videos, two a month, and for at least half of them or more, I got volunteers. And people came down. They had no idea what I was going to ask them. That was part of the deal. And I would ask them about productivity or time management or guilt or self-esteem or whatever. We'd talk it through. And, uh, you know, these were all uh, successful people who had issues they were willing to share, very kind to them. Uh, and uh, that's what we used on screen. They're, you know, they run 12 to 15 minutes, and they make for much more provocative uh, listening, in my opinion. So, you know, that was my intent there. Now, my, I'll give you a, a glimpse into what I want to do. I want to run a session uh, using people like that on stage with maybe 200 people in the audience, using volunteers on stage, and live streaming this to 5,000 people around the world. That's what uh -oh. I want to do. You sound like you're becoming Tony Robbins. Don't do that to me. <laughs> no, no, no. There's, there'll be no fire walking, and there'll be, there'll be no feeling good about yourself. <laughs> well, I think as I said to Lisa Larder on more than one occasion, um, because I know she's helping you um, with all the book promotion, is if you come up with mugs, caps, and T-shirts, I'm leaving the community. <laughs> yeah, well, I vetoed all of that. She wanted it. I vetoed all of it. <laughs> so, but essentially, you're doing hot seats for people. They're sitting on a chair, and you're working through an issue that they have or, or some, a topic they want to talk about and videotaping it live for other people to watch in a recorded version, right? Yeah. I mean, I did this in Australia a couple of years ago with 500 people in the yeah. audience, and I showed one woman who was doing $4,500 for her projects how to turn them immediately into 45000 You could have heard a pin drop in the room, and she began to cry. Uh, <laughs> another guy with whom I did this fired all of his people, uh, turned his business, an accounting business, into a seven-figure business, and is now a member of my growth cycles. So uh, when you do this individually with people, it has a tremendous impact on them. 
I think this is hugely valuable to everyone listening because I know that people are always looking for other ways to deliver content. Um, but this is way more compelling um, than just you on video or just you on audio or in a webcast is why not run a series of interviews or why not ask your clients to come in and you know be put on a hot seat like this and walk through an issue or highlight them in a case study. I think you working with others is uh, very valuable. And it different. is. Uh, yeah, that's right. Because that. so many people relate to the person sitting in that hot seat. Uh, and uh, uh, it's transformational. And it's so much more personal than just doing this on a generalized basis. So, um, you know, I, I'd love to do that. And I think, I think with technology, you can do it on a much larger scale. So do you, how do you come up with these ideas? Well, I ask myself the following. Uh, what is it that people seem to need the most? And what is there about me that can meet those needs or show them what the need is? So as a specific example, I began to realize years ago that it wasn't so much marketing help people needed, although they needed marketing help, but the underlying cause was an esteem problem, and people needed to feel better about themselves and feel better about their self-worth. So that's how I tend to look at things. I look for patterns and commonalities that I can address uh, that most people can relate to, and then I simply tailor that to sort of different patterns of need or where people are in their careers or their lives. And how long do you let something sit, or how long do you try something before you realize it's not going to work? It depends. Uh, if it's a workshop, let's say, uh, uh, I'll see if I get critical mass, and if not, I'll just you know cancel it. I really don't spend anything on that. I don't make any commitments until I get critical mass. If it's a, a subscription series, uh, I'll let it run anyway, because uh, if somebody's getting used for it, and I can always sell it as a product later, uh, but generally, um, because of my vast community and because of Alan's forums, uh, I have a great laboratory, and I know pretty well whether something's going to work or not very, very early. So critical mass means, how do you define what critical mass is, first of all? Well, it, you know, Alan's forums has thousands of members, of whom a small cadre, you know, a couple hundred people, are active on a regular basis, daily or weekly. Uh, plus, you know, I'm getting emailed daily from around the world for a variety of purposes. My coaching program is global. Uh, I have 52 master mentors uh, who in turn have X number of mentors. So, uh, and I have, you know, six or seven columns I do monthly, one weekly. My most popular one is Monday Morning Memo. And so uh, all of these give me very instant feedback because I have soft promotions in them. I have inquiries in them. And I know very, very quickly, if you think of the, like my control board here, mm -hmm. my dashboard, uh, if an idea has worth or not. Okay, okay. And if it um, if you decide that it doesn't, then do you just let it go, or do you try to to make it more successful? No, I move on. I move on. Too many people are weighed down by stuff they refuse to let go of. If it doesn't work, it's gone. I'll try something new because I never doubt I'll come up with something new. That's not the issue. So you sure. know, I, I don't want to waste time on something that's not moving. Yeah. So while we're talking about this, um, my second last question today. Uh, not very many people in this community have a brand as strong as yours. I would venture to guess maybe on this call you have the strongest brand in your community than anyone else on this call. So what are three things that speakers could be doing um, with the Maverick theme to build their brands? Well, I don't think there are three things. I, I, what my advice would be as follows. Use your name as your brand. You can have other brands like mine is the contrarian and so forth, but you use your name on everything you can. Uh, and associate with your name the highest quality of work. And by high quality work, I don't mean uh, obviously ratings on your speeches. I mean you're putting out new IP daily or weekly. Uh, you're inserting new ideas into the public forum. And then the key is this. It's who you attract. I, I speak about this at length in Maverick. You have to be able to attract attractive people. So Colleen's interviewing me on this call. Colleen has attracted all kinds of fabulous people to my community because Colleen is so good at what she does. Lisa Larder, who we've talked about several times, is, is a brilliant Social media, mar social media marketing strategist, a phrase I never thought I'd use about anybody, uh, I met through Colleen. You know? uh, Allie Brown is a member of my community, a brilliant in terms of leadership skills. She's now attending her second thought leadership with me in Palm Beach, came uh, to me because she knows other people. So the, the, and she'll attract people. So you attract attractors, and then you have this exponential growth, uh, people pursuing your brand. And if your brand's your name, what they're doing is pursuing you. When you say put your name on everything, do you mean 
Like instead of saying, here are my top 10 sales tips, say these are Colleen's top 10 sales tips? I do. Okay. That's great. So I want to leave um, you with one last question. What's next for you? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I am experimenting and thinking about a host of different things. I talked to you about that live streaming I'd love to try. Uh, I'd like to be talking about some more subscription services. Uh, and I think I've had such success with Maverick and with the new Million Dollar Consulting. I mean, they're just going crazy that I think I have some real even increased leverage with publishers now, and I might sort of try to write my own ticket with my next book topic. Uh, but, um, you know, I go to Australia next week. I come back for a couple of days then go to Rome for two days, which was lousy planning, but I had to do it. Uh, but then it's the summer, and, uh, you know, Marie and I will go down the Jersey Shore. We'll spend a long time in Nantucket, my favorite place in the world for vacation. Uh, and then I'll see, you know, what I feel like doing. I'm, I'm, you know, I don't feel like I have to have some kind of plan on the books. Uh, I'll see what strikes me, and when it does, I'll move on it. That, that's maverick in and of itself, I think. I would think. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Alan, for spending the um, hour with us. I really appreciate um, all of your wisdom and your energy, your guidance over the last few years, and I know that our members are going to get great value from this call. Well, thank you, Colleen. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. Hey, my pleasure. Have a great uh, rest of your week. You too. Okay, we'll see you soon. Thanks. Thanks, everyone, Ciao. for joining.